0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shepard. Our founders devised a political system that was inherently difficult to change. They saw almost every aspect of the desire for change as needing to be cooled before even the most white-hot desire for progress could be codified. With respect to race and gender, it's been even more difficult. Those were prejudices and stereotypes baked into the founding documents themselves. This is certainly one of the reasons it's taken so long for people of color and for women to be a full part of the political process. Hillary Clinton talked about those tens of millions of cracks in the glass ceiling, but the safety glass that is history made those cracks even harder to break. In fact, perhaps it's only with the election of 2018 that we've seen some of those cracks become full-blown breaks. Because even though women have made lots of political progress up to this point, the terms of the debate and the campaigns themselves have been based on historical precedents set by white men. Now that's changing, and my guest, Caitlin Muscatello, chronicles it in her new book, See Jane Wynn. Caitlin Muscatello is a journalist and writer covering gender, reproductive rights, and politics. She's been nominated for a National Magazine Award and has been a United Nations Press Fellow reporting on women's health issues. She's also the founder of the newsletter Repro, and her writing has appeared in numerous outlets, including The Cut, Refinery29, Condé Nast Traveler, GQ, and many other publications. It is my pleasure to welcome Caitlin Muscatello here to talk about C. Jane Wynn, the inspiring story of the women changing American politics. Caitlin, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. Was 2018 some kind of watershed with respect to women running for elective office?
1: Well, absolutely. Right. So we know from the 2018 elections where women made history, we now have more women in Congress than ever before. We have more women in state legislatures across this country than ever before. Nevada now is the first state uh, to have a female majority legislature. So there were historic and important gains for women in the 2018 elections. And I think we're going to continue to see the momentum from that going forward.
0: One of the things you talk about is that beyond the gains in terms of women holding, running for, and holding elective office, that there have been changes really that have that are becoming fundamental with respect to how women run for office.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the advice to women running has changed a bit. So typically, what we used to see is when women were running for office, um, often they would try to fit themselves into the mold of a, a sort of. I don't want a typical politician. And, you know, when we think about a typical politician, who do we think about? Well, probably an older white man. I mean, that's white men still hold the vast majority of offices in this country. Um, they always have. Um, And so that is something that we would see women kind of struggling with, that they might try to um, fit themselves into a mold that might not feel totally natural to them. And what we saw in 2018 was that women really, um, they really shunned that and said, no, I'm going to run as my authentic self. I'm going to talk about my life experiences as a woman in this country, not just a woman, but in some cases a woman of color or a uh, LGBTQ woman or a woman who grew up low income or who might come from different uh, racial, ethnic, religious backgrounds and bringing those and their life experiences to the front of their campaigns. Um, And what we saw was that voters really responded well to that. I think the authenticity thing and that that piece of it um, was a key part of women's success in 2018. And I also think, again, you know, continuing forward.
0: What is your sense of what made that okay and what allowed that to work in 2018 where that level of honesty and authenticity might not have worked previously? Well,
1: I do think the 2016 election, um, in many ways, Mm -hmm. quickly shifted um, some of the barriers that have historically kept women off the ballot. So, two things that happened in November 2016 was one, women saw Hillary Clinton, who was an extremely qualified candidate, um, who was very prepared. I mean, there were sort of these ridiculous criticisms, right, that she had been overprepared for the debate, and she was like, I. I think I should be prepared for a presidential <laughs> debate, right? So, you know, this woman who was very qualified and who had also done what many of us, you know, women in this country have been told to do, which is pay your dues, keep your head down, work hard, keep going, keep building that resume, and then you'll be good enough. You'll be qualified enough. Um, and they saw her lose. And I think that was part of it. And then, not only did she lose, but she lost to a man who had no political qualifications to speak of, who ran an openly sexist uh, and racist campaign, who many Americans knew um, as you know, the star of The Apprentice. They saw him take her place. And so what that did was it actually kind of quickly helped women overcome, and I'm not trying to give Donald Trump credit here, um, but it, I, there, one of the barriers that has kept women um, off the ballot for a long time is this idea of, like, well, I'm not, I'm not qualified enough. I have to have the perfect resume. I need to put in more years. Maybe I'll do this down the road. And there was, I think, this collective realization among women in this country that, oh, you know, if that, guy, if that guy can be president of the United States, surely I can run for Congress <laughs> or my state legislature or my town council or whatever the office might be.
0: What role did policy have with respect to the issues that were front and center in people's minds and the way women addressed those issues? Well, there were big
1: there were threats to some very fundamental things that affect all Americans, but that also um, significantly impact women. So one of the big policy issues, of course, with he- health, with health care. So right out of the gate, it was not only, you know, the starting in early 2017, it was not only that there was you know, the Trump administration. There was also a GOP controlled House and Senate. Um, and then with Trump in, in the Oval Office, there was no backstop to anything they wanted to push forward. And healthcare was, you know, Trump had had his eye on that from the beginning. That seemed to be a win that he very much wanted. He wanted to, he was going to, uh, and Republicans had, of course, been talking about it since the Affordable Care Act was passed. Um, but there was repeal and replace, repeal and replace, repeal and replace. OK. And so in May 2017, when there was this photo that went around, it, w- it was in the press. It was a photo of all white male Republican lawmakers mm-hmm. sitting at a table drafting their health care bill. A health care bill that did not that had a loophole. It had a loophole for uh, companies to not cover pre existing conditions that would have allowed uh, that would have allowed uh, insurance companies not to cover some very expensive uh, maternal care. For women, who they, you know, there were all these things that, that, were, that were happening that were direct threats. And I think, in terms of a policy position, what I heard from the female candidates that I interviewed, including now Congresswoman um, Abigail Stamberger, including now Congresswoman uh, Lauren Underwood, was that that moment, that health care vote was a huge trigger point where they really said, the stakes are so high. And I think there was, we, we were all a little bit um, tentative in the beginning and said, okay, Trump was one way on the campaign trail. And I think very early on, if you think back to early 2017, the question was, okay, was that kind of an act? Is he actually going to be, you know, is he going to act that way in office? And what we've seen, of course, is that that is the case. And the stakes at that point, it was very, very clear that the stakes were very high. It was very, very clear that women's rights were at risk.
0: One of the things that that you point out is that not only is this happening on a national level with congressional races or Senate races, but this is happening on on a fundamental local level that we're seeing a sea change.
1: Yeah. So three of the main characters in the book are actually state candidates. So there is New York Assemblywoman, now New York Assemblywoman. Um, none of these women were in office when I started uh, speaking with them and following their campaigns. Um, uh, Catalina Cruz, she's now the first dreamer ever elected to office in New York, only the third in the country. In Florida, you have um, Anna Escamani, who is an activist activist in her community, um, who's the first Iranian-American person to be elected to office in her state. You have London Lamar, who is now the youngest black woman in the Tennessee state legislature. So these are some of the characters that I followed. And these state races are really important. And I didn't only want to focus on Congress, which of course was a big story, a story that became even bigger throughout the two years that I was reporting this book. But at state legislatures, they pass so much more legislation that impacts people on a day to day basis. They also tend to pass it quicker. And I'm talking about issues that really can also impact um, our federal elections. They can impact what happens in Washington and then at the federal level. So a big example of that is, of course, voting rights and redistricting. And that is all happening at the state level. Um, In terms of the women, you know, in terms of women's rights and reproductive rights, most of the abortion legislation in this country and the restrictions, the extreme restrictions that we're seeing right now, they are having at the state level. So we need more women in those offices to be representing the women in their states.
0: The other aspect of this is the part by which it is building a bench, building a whole group of women that will move up into other offices over time, it seems.
1: Right, exactly. This idea of a pipeline, right? And a big part of the pipeline is not just recruiting women, um, which which is becoming easier and easier to do, Um, but it is also giving women examples of women like them in office. So it's a little bit of a cheesy thing, but it's very, very true. Um, the- it's in the book. Amanda Littman, who's the founder of Run for Something, she said to me uh, early on in my reporting, it's stuck with me, and it's in the book. She said, if you see it, you can be it. And it's this mantra that really, really rings true. I saw it in action. I continue to see it in action, that when women see people like them, who look like them, who sound like them, who have lived experiences like they've lived, who are talking about issues that they resonate with, and also talking about them in an authentic way because they've lived those experiences, when they see that and they say, that woman's in a position of power, that woman's in a leadership role, it immediately, it kind of turns on this light of, I could do that too. I can see myself there now because I see a woman already there that, that is in that place. Um, and the power of that is in really, really incredible. Um, I do think also that that's one of the reasons that when we're having conversations about ever having a female president of the United States, I think that that's something that um, doesn't get talked about enough is that we have never seen a woman in the Oval Office. We none of us anywhere in our head, right, have that reference point, have that visual. And that is actually a really powerful thing. that. Works against women who are running for those executive positions.
0: How different is it when you see women running against other women, be they in primary campaigns or in general election campaigns, versus women running against men? What's different in terms of the way that's approached?
1: Well, first of all, it's a great scenario when we have multiple women running against each other. That is a good thing. Kimberly Taylor Allen, who is the co-founder of Higher Heights, it's an organization that supports and trains Black women running for office. She said something to me that st- that stood with me. There was a um, there was a mayoral race um, in Louisiana that they that Higher Heights was invested in, and there were actually two Black women, not just two women, but there were two Black women um, running in a primary there, and so they had to they were trying to pick who they were going to support. And she looked at me and said, "You know, it's the white boy problem." Right, like what a great problem to have that we have multiple women in a race, or even multiple women of color. Um, It is the ideal scenario when women are running against each other. Though, um, I don't want to make it sound kumbaya. I don't want to make it sound like they're braiding each other's hair and supporting each other no matter what or anything like that. But there is a little, there is a bit of a sisterhood. I did see that um, in my reporting. To go back to Abigail Spanberger, she was in a crowded primary Um, when she first entered the race. There were already five women running. for that nomination. And there ended up being one man in the Democratic primary as well. Um, And they were civil to each other. They would see each other at events. You know, some of them have kids and their kids might kind of play together. When it became something that was really effective and really important in that race is that when it became clear that Abigail Spamberger was um, doing really well with fundraising, that she had a large network of support within the district. When that that really started to come to light within that first uh, fundraising quarter, other women in the race, looked at her and said, okay, we're going to support you. Um, And I'm not saying that women should drop out just to do that, but it was something that was significant because they very early on um, got behind her and she actually had a, a, some of her opponents um, ended up endorsing her her female opponent, uh, opponents, and they ended up endorsing her and supporting her campaign. Um, and so that was something that was really powerful to see because they wanted to be the nominee and they were in the fight and they were very passionate about them. I talked to all the other women who were in her primary when it first started, um, and they did end up, not all of them, but but a few of those women ended up really getting behind her Kennedy, uh, in a big way.
0: What are you seeing in terms of differences with respect to geography, the way it is for women to run in a place like New York or even Virginia, Virginia, as opposed to Mississippi or Alabama or Florida?
1: Well, it obviously, it really depends on the district even more than the geography, which is something that I learned in my reporting. Um, So – Really, it's about the dynamic. So it's like, so here in New York, of course, right? So it's it's very, New York is progressive. The Democratic primary in many of these races is the election. And in Catalina Cruz's case, what was interesting is she was running against a woman who was. The uh, they were you know, sort of part of this Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez movement where she was going against the, the Democratic establishment, the queen's machine. She was going against their pick. Right. So it was a woman against a woman. And it was this very progressive liberal woman um, versus the kind of old school establishments pick who also happened to be a woman. And that really sort of shaped her campaign and the way voters responded to her. Um, you know, down in Florida, you know, Anna Eskamani was in a purple district. Like it was not necessarily going to go to a Democrat. She ran what was really interesting about her race is she ran an unapologetically bold progressive campaign. She was not just out there when she was, it wasn't just that she was asked at candidate forums like, oh, so what's your policy with, you know, in terms of reproductive rights. She was out there rallying. She was saying, um, you know, we need Abortion access for women. She wasn't calling it, you know, women's health issues or whatever. She was saying abortion. We need abortion access. She was talking about gun control, right? When she was talking, she was in the district in Orlando where the Pulse nightclub shooting happened, where more than forty people were gunned down um, at a club that she had gone to. That she was that night. She was on her phone calling her friends, making sure they were still alive. And she came out and said no. You know, no, this isn't acceptable. We need stricter gun laws. And she ran openly and boldly on those platforms and did really well in Florida in a purple district. Um, So again, it was a lot about talking about issues. I think a lot of it had to do with just energizing support, um, getting people behind them, and also being really unequivocally clear on where they stood. Um, People responded well to that. They responded well to these women having a very uh, particular stance on an issue. And even maybe some people didn't agree with that stance. I do think what that shows is this one piece of what people look for. So there's research that speaks to this, but women candidates have to walk this razor-thin line between being both strong and authoritative and showing these what might be considered more masculine traits by some people. But Voters also want women and respond well to women who have this kind of caring and nurturing aspects what might be considered more feminine traits. And having to balance that is really, really hard. Um, and I think both by talking about their authentic experiences, but then also being very clear where they stood on certain issues and not apologizing for their stances, um, that showed that authority and that strength. And that was really helpful in getting people around them.
0: What's happening around the country in terms of recruitment of more women to run?
1: Yeah, well, something I'm really glad to hear. I was actually uh, speaking with uh, Amanda Littman, who's the co-founder for Run for Something, uh, last night. And I was asking her this. I said, what how are you, of course, so we know that there were, after 2016, women were signing up with this, these groups. They wanted to run and there was this peaked interest. And that continued in 2018. All the uh, leaders of these various organizations that I continue to speak with told me that that interest um, continued, there was mo- that momentum had continued on. And I was asking her last night, I'm so glad you asked this, um, about, uh, if she was still seeing that. And she said, you know, absolutely, absolutely. This is just continuing. And there's more and more people on her organization. Um, I think their goal for next year, I mean, they could have, you know, even be endorsing a thousand candidates. So it is a huge, huge movement that's continuing on. Um, and that's important. We do need to be recruiting people. Something that Erin Velarde says in the book when I interviewed her, she's the founder of uh, and CEO of Vote Run Lead, uh, which is actually nonpartisan. The Vote Run Lead supports women running for office, um, women from any party, but who who care about women's issues. And what she was saying, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of getting more women into office and just sort of getting people excited about all this, um, was that, yes, we, it's good to recruit, but we also have to make sure that we're really training and we're really keeping the women we already have, because now there are tens of thousands of women across the country who have signed up for these organizations. And at a certain point, yes, recruit, but you have to make sure that you're addressing the women who are already in the system. Like let's start getting them into office. Let's start supporting them too. Um, and so that, I thought, was a really interesting th- thing to say, but also really indicative of just the volume of interest from women around the country.
0: And are there more women that are looking to run on the Republican side? I know that's not what you focus on in the book, but what, what does your reporting tell you on this?
1: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you asked this, because with on the Republican side, when I was in the beginning stages of this book, um, the all the reports from groups, of course, groups like Emily's List and Emerge America, they're for Democratic women. But I was curious um, if, uh, if there was going to be a response from women within the Republican Party. Um, you know, there were groups... Um, there, it's now called Republican Women for Progress, but it was during the 2016 election, Republican Women for Hillary, um, where you had these much more moderate women who were saying, what is happening to our party? How is Donald Trump our president? Like, what are we doing? Women who supported a woman's right to choose, right? Who thought some of this political theater and, and that was going on was absolutely absurd, who, were, who could not believe that they had a, uh, a nominee for their party for president who was overtly racist and who were just saying, what is going on? And I thought it actually would have been really interesting if women in that party had risen up and said, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to run and we're going to run too. we're going to try to take this party has gone off the rails and we are going to try to take it back. And that would have been interesting. It did not happen. It did not happen. And really, I was so I was following the story. And the story was that progressive women were running in big numbers. Progressive women were getting support. They were fighting back. And now, of course, we know they also won in historic numbers.
0: And do you see any change in that regard as we go into 2020? Will we see more Republican women running at this point?
1: So there are now recruiting efforts mm-hmm. on the Republican side. Um, I My reporting on this is, is um, not nearly as vast mm-hmm. as my reporting, of, of course, on, on the women who ran in 2018. Um, so I don't want to overspeak on the issue. But what I will say is that there are reports about this that I have read um, that are out there in the media that there are efforts, right? There are efforts by the Republican Party now, I think, who have been uh, – very much sort of a wake up call for them, seeing the success of the Democratic Party and seeing how women are have women voters have been energized um, by female candidates. There does seem to be a bit of a scramble right now for them to also recruit women. Something that I think is a challenge, though, on the Republican side is that it's, they, it's, it's a very male dominated party. It is still very, very much an, uh, a boys club. And so to get women involved there, they have to be able to make room for them they have to be able to make room for them. And I do think it's a bit difficult. It's a challenge for women, uh, Republican women to run for office in certain parts of the country. where the policy of their party or the rhetoric of their party is becoming more and more extreme against women. Um, So that's something that I think we're just going to have to see how it plays out and continues to unfold.
0: And finally, do you see a nexus between more women running and these recruitment efforts and all the things we've been talking about, and how it will play out against the backdrop of this presidential, Democratic presidential primary and campaign?
1: So, I mean, all of this, again, is still playing out. I mean, something that I say, and I, I think it was um, Rebecca Tracer who is uh, a writer at New York right. Magazine, which I also write for. Um, she had this great um, article that she did a, a little while ago where she basically said, none of us know what's going to happen, right? One of the mistakes from 2016, I think, was that the media, everyone was acting like everyone knew everything. And the fact of the matter is, is that these elections are unpredictable and nobody really knows. So I think I'm going to stick with that and say, I can't tell you what's going to happen um, in 2020. What I do hope... Hope. What I do hope is that we don't – that the Democratic Party doesn't fear putting forward an incredible female candidate only because they're afraid, only because they say, well, Hillary Clinton lost, so therefore we have to kind of revert back to this idea of, well, we need this moderate you know, white male who might people might be safer and independence might appeal to them, and which that was not what happened. And if you look at the data, if you look at who voted, right, 59% of voters in the Democratic Party, or 59, sorry, 59% of women um, who voted in 2018 voted Democratic. Young women um, right now are increasingly Democratic. Uh, women of color are the, are the backbone of the Democratic Party. They are the most reliable voting bloc for this party. And so I do think we need to be saying to ourselves, well, where is the energy? Who succeeded last year? Where are we now? Rather than just looking back and saying, well, what used to work before? Maybe we should just do that again. Um, I, I worry about that. I, I do not see that as a winning formula.
0: Caitlin Muscatello, her book is See Jane Wynn, the inspiring story of the women changing American politics. Caitlin, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you.